What will Jim discover once he returns triumphant from his sea adventure? Robert Louis Stevenson, today on the Classic Tales Podcast. Welcome to the Classic Tales Podcast. Thank you for listening. We are proudly supported by our listeners. Many, many thanks to our financial supporters who pitch in every month to help keep us going. If you enjoy the show, please sign up to be a supporter for as little as $5 a month. We'll give you a monthly coupon code for $8 off any audiobook order. Give more and you get more. Go to classictalesaudiobooks.com and become a financial supporter today. Thank you so much. And please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. And feel free to check out our YouTube channel. Links can be found in the description for today's episode. And now, Treasure Island, Part 6 of 7, by Robert Louis Stevenson. Chapter 6 Pieces of Eight Owing to the cant of the vessel, the masts hung far out over the water, and from my perch on the cross-trees I had nothing below me but the surface of the bay. Hans, who was not so far up, was in consequence nearer to the ship and fell between me and the bulwarks. He rose once to the surface in a lather of foam and blood, and then sank again for good. As the water settled, I could see him lying huddled together on the clean, bright sand in the shadow of the vessel's sides. A fish or two whipped past his body. Sometimes, by the quivering of the water, he appeared to move a little, as if he were trying to rise. But he was dead enough for all that, being both shot and drowned, and was food for fish in the very place where he had designed my slaughter. I was no sooner certain of this than I began to feel sick, faint and terrified. The hot blood was running over my back and chest. The dirk, where it had pinned my shoulder to the mast, seemed to burn like a hot iron. Yet it was not so much these real sufferings that distressed me, for these, it seemed to me, I could bear without a murmur. It was the horror I had upon my mind of falling from the cross-trees into that still green water beside the body of the coxswain. I clung with both hands till my nails ached, and I shut my eyes as if to cover up the peril. Gradually my mind came back again. My pulses quieted down to a more natural time, and I was once more in possession of myself. It was my first thought to pluck forth the dirk, but either it stuck too hard or my nerve failed me, and I desisted with a violent shudder. Oddly enough, that shudder did the business. The knife, in fact, had come the nearest in the world to missing me altogether. It held me by a mere pinch of skin, and this the shudder tore away. The blood ran down the faster, to be sure, but I was my own master again, and only tacked to the mast by my coat and shirt. These last I broke through with a sudden jerk, and then regained the deck by the starboard shrouds 
for nothing in the world would I have again ventured, shaken as I was, upon the overhanging port shrouds from which Israel had so lately fallen. I went below, and did what I could for my wound. It pained me a good deal, and still bled freely, but it was neither deep nor dangerous. Nor did it greatly gall me when I used my arm. Then I looked around me, and as the ship was now, in a sense, my own, I began to think of clearing it from its last passenger, the dead man, O'Brien. He had pitched, as I have said, against the bulwarks, where he lay like some horrible, ungainly sort of puppet, life-sized indeed, but how different from life's colour or life's comeliness. In that position I could easily have my way with him, and as the habit of tragical adventures had worn off almost all my terror for the dead, I took him by the waist as if he had been a sack of bran, and with one good heave tumbled him overboard. He went in with a sounding plunge. The red cap came off and remained floating on the surface, and as soon as the splash subsided, I could see him and Israel lying side by side, both wavering with the tremulous movement of the water. O'Brien, though still quite a young man, was very bald. There he lay, with that bald head across the knees of the man who had killed him, and the quick fishes steering to and fro over both. I was now alone upon the ship. The tide had just turned. The sun was within so few degrees of setting that already the shadow of the pines upon the western shore began to reach right across the anchorage and fall in patterns on the deck. The evening breeze had sprung up, and though it was well warded off by the hill with the two peaks upon the east, the cordage had begun to sing a little softly to itself, and the idle sails to rattle to and fro. I began to see a danger to the ship. The jibs I speedily doused and brought tumbling to the deck, but the mainsail was a harder matter. Of course, when the schooner canted over, the boom had swung outboard, and the cap of it and a foot or two of sail hung even under water. I thought this made it still more dangerous. Yet the strain was so heavy that I half feared to meddle. At last I got my knife and cut the halyards. The peak dropped instantly. A great belly of loose canvas floated broad upon the water. And since, pull as I liked, I could not budge the downhaul, that was the extent of what I could accomplish. For the rest the Hispaniola must trust to luck like myself. By this time the whole anchorage had fallen into shadow. The last rays, I remember, falling through the glade of the wood and shining bright as jewels on the flowery mantle of the wreck. It began to be chill. The tide was rapidly fleeting seaward, the schooner settling more and more on her beam ends. I scrambled forward and looked over. It seemed shallow enough, and holding the cut hawser in both hands for a last security, I let myself drop softly overboard. The water scarcely reached my waist. The sand was firm and covered with ripple marks, and I waded ashore in great spirits, leaving the Hispaniola on her side, with her mainsail trailing wide upon the surface of the bay. About the same time, the sun went fairly down, and the breeze whistled low in the dusk among the tossing pines. At least, and at last, I was off the sea. Nor had I returned thence empty-handed. 
there lay the schooner, clear at last from buccaneers and ready for our own men to board and get to sea again. I had nothing nearer my fancy than to get home to the stockade and boast of my achievements. Possibly I might be blamed a bit for my truantry, but the recapture of the Hispaniola was a clenching answer, and I hoped that even Captain Smollett would confess I had not lost my time. So thinking, and in famous spirits, I began to set my face homeward for the blockhouse and my companions. I remembered that the most easterly of the rivers which drain into Captain Kidd's anchorage ran from the two-peaked hill upon my left, and I bent my course in that direction that I might pass the stream while it was small. The wood was pretty open, and keeping along the lower spurs, I had soon turned the corner of that hill, and not long after waded to the mid-calf across the watercourse. This brought me near to where I had encountered Ben Gunn, the maroon, and I walked more circumspectly, keeping an eye on every side. The dusk had come nigh hand completely, and as I opened out the cleft between the two peaks, I became aware of a wavering glow against the sky, where, as I judged, the man of the island was cooking his supper before a roaring fire. And yet I wondered, in my heart, that he should show himself so careless. For if I could see this radiance, might it not reach the eyes of Silver himself, where he camped upon the shore, among the marshes? Gradually the night fell blacker, it was all I could do to guide myself even roughly towards my destination. The double hill behind me, and the spyglass on my right hand, loomed faint and fainter. The stars were few and pale, and in the low ground where I wandered, I kept tripping among bushes and rolling into sandy pits. Suddenly a kind of brightness fell about me. I looked up. A pale glimmer of moonbeams had alighted on the summit of the spyglass, and soon after I saw something broad and silvery moving low down behind the trees, and knew the moon had risen. With this to help me, I passed rapidly over what remained to me of my journey, and sometimes walking, sometimes running, impatiently drew near to the stockade. Yet, as I began to thread the grove that lies before it, I was not so thoughtless but that I slacked my pace and went a trifle warily. It would have been a poor end of my adventures to get shot down by my own party in mistake. The moon was climbing higher and higher. Its light began to fall here and there in masses through the more open districts of the wood, and right in front of me a glow of a different colour appeared among the trees. It was red and hot, and now and again it was a little darkened, as it were, the embers of a bonfire smouldering. For the life of me I could not think what it might be. At last I came right down upon the borders of the clearing. The western end was already steeped in moonshine. The rest, and the blockhouse itself, still lay in a black shadow, checkered with long silvery streaks of light. On the other side of the house an immense fire had burned itself into clear embers, and shed a steady red reverberation contrasted strongly with the mellow paleness of the moon. There was not a soul stirring, nor a sound, beside the noises of the breeze. I stopped, with much wonder in my heart, and perhaps a little terror also. It had not been our way to build great fires. We were indeed by the captain's orders 
somewhat niggardly of firewood, and I began to fear that something had gone wrong while I was absent. I stole round by the eastern end, keeping close in shadow, and at a convenient place, where the darkness was thickest, crossed the palisade. To make assurance surer, I got upon my hands and knees and crawled, without a sound, towards the corner of the house. As I drew nearer, my heart was suddenly and greatly lightened. It was not a pleasant noise in itself, and I have often complained of it at other times, but just then it was like music to hear my friends snoring together so loud and peaceful in their sleep. The sea-cry of the watch, that beautiful all's well, never fell more reassuringly on my ear. In the meantime, there was no doubt of one thing. They kept an infamous bad watch. If it had been Silver and his lads that were now creeping in on them, not a soul would have seen daybreak. That was what it was, thought I, to have the captain wounded. And again I blamed myself sharply for leaving them in that danger, with so few to mount guard. By this time I had got to the door and stood up. All was dark within, so that I could distinguish nothing by the eye. As for sounds, there was the steady drone of the snorers and a small occasional noise, a flickering or pecking that I could in no way account for. With my arms before me I walked steadily in. I should lie down in my own place, I thought with a silent chuckle, and enjoy their faces when they found me in the morning. My foot struck something yielding. It was a sleeper's leg, and he turned and groaned, but without awaking. And then, all of a sudden, a shrill voice broke forth out of the darkness. Pieces of eight! 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 And so forth, without pause or change, like the clacking of a tiny mill. Silver's green parrot, Captain Flint! It was she whom I had heard pecking at a piece of bark. It was she, keeping better watch than any human being, who thus announced my arrival with her wearisome refrain. I had no time left me to recover. At the sharp, clipping tone of the parrot, the sleepers awoke and sprang up, and with a mighty oath, the voice of Silver cried, Who goes? I turned to run, struck violently against one person, recoiled, and ran full into the arms of a second who, for his part, closed upon and held me tight. "'Bring a torch, Dick,' said Silver, when my capture was thus assured, and one of the men left the log-house and presently returned with a lighted brand. Part 6 Captain Silver Chapter 1 In the Enemy's Camp The red glare of the torch lighting up the interior of the blockhouse, showed me the worst of my apprehensions realized. The pirates were in possession of the house and stores. There was the cask of cognac. There were the pork and bread, as before, and what tenfold increased my horror, not a sign of any prisoner. I could only judge that all had perished, and my heart smote me sorely that I had not been there to perish with them. There were six of the buccaneers, all told. Not another man was left alive. Five of them were on their feet, flushed and swollen, suddenly called out of the first sleep of drunkenness. The sixth had only risen upon his elbow. He was deadly pale, and the blood-stained bandage round his head, 
told that he had recently been wounded, and still more recently dressed. I remembered the man who had been shot and had run back among the woods in the great attack, and doubted not that this was he. The parrot sat, preening her plumage, on Long John's shoulder. He himself, I thought, looked somewhat paler and more stern than I was used to. He still wore the fine broadcloth suit in which he had fulfilled his mission, but it was bitterly the worse for wear, daubed with clay and torn with the sharp briars of the wood. So, said he, here's Jim Hawkins, shiver my timbers, dropped in like, eh? Well, come, I take that friendly. And thereupon he sat down across the brandy cask and began to fill a pipe. Give me a loan of the link, Dick, said he, and then, when he had a good light, that'll do, lad, he added. Stick the glim in the wood heap, and you, gentlemen, bring yourselves too. You needn't stand up for Mr. Hawkins. He'll excuse you, you may lay to that. And so, Jim, stopping the tobacco, here you were, and quite a pleasant surprise for poor old John. I see you were smart when I first set my eyes on you. But this ear gets away from me clean, it do. To all this, as may be well supposed, I made no answer. They had set me with my back against the wall, and I stood there, looking silver in the face, pluckily enough, I hope, to all outward appearance, but with black despair in my heart. Silver took a whiff or two of his pipe with great composure, and then ran on again. Now you see, Jim, so be as you are here, says he, I'll give you a piece of my mind. I've always liked you, I have, for a lad of spirit, and the picture of my own self when I was young and handsome. I always wanted you to join and take your share and die a gentleman, and now my cock you've got to. Captain Smollett's a fine seaman, as I'll own up to any day, but stiff on discipline. Duty is duty, says he, and right he is. Just you keep clear of the captain. The doctor himself is gone dead again you. Ungrateful scamp was what he said. And the short of the long of the whole story is about here. You can't go back to your own lot, for they won't have you. And with that you start a third ship's company all by yourself, which might be lonely. You'll have to join with Captain Silver. So far so good. My friends then were still alive, and though I partly believed the truth of Silver's statement, that the cabin party were incensed at me for my desertion, I was more relieved than distressed by what I heard. I don't say nothing as to your being in our hands, continued Silver, though there you are, and you may lay to it. I am all for argument. I never seen good come out of threatening. If you like the service, well, you'll join, and if you don't, Jim, why, you're free to answer no. Free and welcome, shipmate, and if fairer can be said by mortal seamen, shiver my sides. Am I to answer, then? I asked, with a very tremulous voice. Through all this sneering talk, I was made to feel the threat of death that overhung me and my cheeks burned and my heart beat painfully in my breast. Lad, said Silver, no one's a pressing of you. Take your bearings. None of us won't hurry you, mate. 
Time goes so pleasant in your company, you see. Well, says I, growing a bit bolder, if I'm to choose, I declare I have a right to know what's what, and why you're here and where my friends are. What's what? repeated one of the buccaneers in a deep growl. Ah, he'd be a lucky one, is no that. You'll perhaps batten down your hatches till you're spoke to, my friend, cried Silver truculently to this speaker, and then in his first gracious tones he replied to me. Yesterday morning, Mr. Hawkins, said he, in the dog watch, down came Dr. Livesey with a flag of truce. Says he, Captain Silver, you're sold out, ship's gone. Well, maybe we'd been taking a glass and a song to help it round. I won't say no. Leastways none of us had looked out. We looked out and by thunder the old ship was gone. I never seen a pack of fools look fishier. And you may lay to that if I tells you that looked the fishiest. Well, says the doctor, let's bargain. We bargained, him and I. And here we are. Stores, brandy, blockhouse, the firewood you was thoughtful enough to cut, and in a matter of speaking, the whole blessed boat from cross trees to Kelson. As for them, they've tramped. I don't know where's they are. He drew again quietly at his pipe. And lest you should take it into that head of yours, he went on, that you was included in the treaty, here's the last word that was said. How many are you, says I, to leave? Four, says he, four, and one of us wounded. As for that boy, I don't know where he is, confound him, says he. Nor I don't much care. We're about sick of him. These was his words. Is that all? I asked. Well, it's all that you're to hear, my son, returned Silver. And now I am to choose? And now you are to choose, and you may lay to that, said Silver. Well, said I, I am not such a fool, but I know pretty well what I have to look for. Let the worst come to the worst, it's little I care. I've seen too many die since I fell in with you. But there's a thing or two I have to tell you, I said, and by this time I was quite excited. And the first is this. Here you are, in a bad way, ship lost, treasure lost, men lost, your whole business gone to wreck. And if you want to know who did it, it was I. I was in the apple barrel the night we sighted land, and I heard you, John, and you, Dick Johnson, and Hans, who is now at the bottom of the sea, and told every word you said before the hour was out. And as for the schooner, it was I who cut her cable, and it was I that killed the men you heard aboard of her and it was I who brought her where you'll never see her more, not one of you. The laugh's on my side. I've had the top of this business from the first. I no more fear you than I fear a fly. Kill me if you please, or spare me, but one thing I'll say, and no more. If you spare me, bygones are bygones, and when you fellows are in court for piracy, I'll save you all I can. It is for you to choose. Kill another, and do yourselves no good, or spare me, and keep a witness to save you from the gallows. I stopped, for I tell you I was out of breath, and to my wonder not a man of them moved, but all sat staring at me like as many sheep. And while they were still staring I broke out again, 
And now, Mr. Silver, I said, I believe you're the best man here, and if things go to the worst, I'll take it kind of you to let the doctor know the way I took it. I'll bear it in mind, said Silver, with an accent so curious that I could not, for the life of me, decide whether he were laughing at my request or had been favourably affected by my courage. I'll put one to that, cried the old mahogany-faced seaman, Morgan by name, whom I had seen in Long John's public house upon the quays of Bristol. It was him that knowed Black Dog. Well, and see here, added the sea-cook. I'll put another again to that by thunder, for it was the same boy that faked the chart from Billy Bones. First and last we've split upon Jim Orkins. Then here goes, said Morgan with an oath, and he sprang up, drawing his knife as if he had been twenty. Avast there, cried Silver. Who are you, Tom Morgan? Maybe you thought you was captain here, perhaps. By the powers, but I'll teach you better. Cross me and you'll go where many a good man's gone before you, first and last, these thirty years back. Some to the yardarm shiver my timbers, and some by the board, and all to feed the fishes. There's never a man looked me between the eyes and seen a good day afterwards, Tom Morgan, and you may lay to that. Morgan paused, but a hoarse murmur rose from the others. Tom's right, said one. I stood azing long enough from one, added another. I'll be hanged if I'll be azed by you, John Silver. Did any of you gentlemen want to have it out with me? roared Silver bending far forward from his position on the keg, with his pipe still glowing in his right hand. Put a name on what you're at. You ain't dumb, I reckon. Him that wants shall get it. Have I lived this many years, and the son of a rum punch and cock his hat athwart my haws at the latter end of it? You know the way. You're all gentlemen of fortune by your account. Well, I'm ready. Take a cutlass him that dares and I'll see the colour of his inside crutch and all before that pipe's empty. Not a man stirred. Not a man answered. That's your sort, is it? He added, returning his pipe to his mouth. Well, you're a gay lot to look at anyway. Not much worth to fight, you ain't. Perhaps you can understand King George's English. I'm captain here by election. I'm captain here because I'm the best man by a long sea mile. You won't fight, as gentlemen of fortune should. Then by thunder you'll obey, and you may lay to it. I like that boy now. i never seen a better boy than that. He's more a man than any pair of rats of you in this here house. And what I say is this. Let me see him that lay a hand on him. That's what I say, and you may lay to it. There was a long pause after this. I stood straight up against the wall, my heart still going like a sledgehammer, but with a ray of hope now shining in my bosom. Silver leant back against the wall, his arms crossed, his pipe in the corner of his mouth, as calm as though he had been in church. Yet his eye kept wandering furtively, and he kept the tail of it on his unruly followers. They, on their part, drew gradually together towards the far end of the blockhouse, and the low hiss of their whispering sounded in my ear continuously, like a stream. 
one after another. They would look up, and the red light of the torch would fall for a second on their nervous faces. But it was not towards me. It was towards Silver that they turned their eyes. You seem to have a lot to say, remarked Silver, spitting far into the air. Pipe up and let me hear it, or lay to. Ask your pardon, sir, returned one of the men. You're pretty free with some of the rules. Maybe you'll kindly keep an eye upon the rest. This crew's dissatisfied. This crew don't valley bullying and marlin spike. This crew has its rights like other crews. All make so free as that. And by your own rules, I take it, we can talk together. I ask your pardon, sir, acknowledging you for to be captaining at the present. But I claim my right, and steps outside for a council. And with an elaborate sea salute, this fellow, a long, ill-looking, yellow-eyed man of five-and-thirty, stepped coolly towards the door and disappeared out of the house. One after another the rest followed his example, each making a salute as he passed, each adding some apology. According to rules, said one. Folks will counsel, said Morgan. And so with one remark or another, all marched out and left Silver and me alone with the torch. The sea cook instantly removed his pipe. Now you look here, Jim Orkins, he said in a steady whisper. It was no more than audible. You're within half a plank of death, and what's a long sight worse, of torture. They're going to throw me off, but you, Mark, I stand by you through thick and thin. I didn't mean to. No, not till you spoke up. I was about desperate to lose that much blunt and be hanged into the bargain, but I see you as the right sort. I says to myself, you stand by Orkins, John, and Orkins will stand by you. You're his last card, and by the living thunder, John, he's yours. Back to back, says I. You save your witness, and he'll save your neck. I began dimly to understand. You mean all's lost? I asked. Aye, by gum, I do, he answered. Ship gone, neck gone, that's the size of it. Once I looked into that bay, Jim Orkins, and seen no schooner, well, I'm tough, but I gave out. As for that lot and their counsel, mark me. They're outright fools and cowards. I'll save your life, if so be as I can, from them. But see here, Jim, tit for tat, you save Long John from swinging. I was bewildered. It seemed a thing so hopeless he was asking. He, the old buccaneer, the ringleader throughout. What I can do, that I'll do, I said. It's a bargain, cried Long John. You speak up plucky and by thunder, I've a chance. He hobbled to the torch, where it stood propped among the firewood and took a fresh light to his pipe. Understand me, Jim, he said, returning. I've a head on my shoulders, I have. I'm on Squire's side now. I know you've got that ship safe somewheres. How you done it, I don't know. But safe it is. I guess Hans and O'Brien turned soft. I never much believed in neither of them. Now you mark me. I ask no questions, nor I won't let others. I know when a game's up, I do, and I know a lad that's staunch. Ah, you that's young, 
You and me might have done a power of good together. He drew some cognac from the cask into a tin canakin. Will you taste, messmate? he asked. And when I had refused, well, I'll take a drain myself, Jim, said he. I need a corker, for there's trouble on hand. And talking of trouble, why did that doctor give me the chart, Jim? My face expressed a wonder so unaffected that he saw the needlessness of further questions. Ah, well, he did, though, said he. And there's something under that, no doubt. Something, surely, under that, Jim, bad or good. And he took another swallow of the brandy, shaking his great fair head like a man who looks forward to the worst. Chapter 2 The Black Spot Again The Council of Buccaneers had lasted some time when one of them re-entered the house, and with a repetition of the same salute, which had in my eyes an ironical air, begged for a moment's loan of the torch. Silver briefly agreed, and this emissary retired again, leaving us together in the dark. There's a breeze coming, Jim, said Silver, who had by this time adopted quite a friendly and familiar tone. I turned to the loophole nearest me and looked out. The embers of the great fire had so far burned themselves out and now glowed so low and duskily that I understood why these conspirators desired a torch. About halfway down the slope to the stockade, they were collected in a group. One held the light, another was on his knees in their midst, and I saw the blade of an open knife shine in his hand with varying colours in the moon and torchlight. The rest were all somewhat stooping, as though watching the manoeuvres of this last. I could just make out that he had a book as well as a knife in his hand, and was still wondering how anything so incongruous had come in their possession when the kneeling figure rose once more to his feet, and the whole party began to move together towards the house. Here they come, said I, and I returned to my former position, for it seemed beneath my dignity that they should find me watching them. Well, let em come, lad, let em come, said Silver cheerily. I've still a shot in my locker. The door opened, and the five men, standing huddled together just inside, pushed one of their number forward. In any other circumstances, it would have been comical to see his slow advance, hesitating as he set down each foot, but holding his closed right hand in front of him. Step up, lad, cried Silver. I won't eat you. Hand it over, lubber. I know the rules I do. I won't hurt a deputation. Thus encouraged, the buccaneer stepped forth more briskly, and having passed something to Silver from hand to hand, slipped yet more smartly back again to his companions. The sea-cook looked at what had been given him. The black spot. I thought so, he observed. Where might you have got the paper? Why, hello. Look here now, this ain't lucky. You've gone and cut this out of a Bible. What fools cut a Bible? Ah, there, said Morgan. Eh, what did I say? No good'll come of that, I said. Well, you've about fixed it now among you, continued Silver. You'll all swing now, I reckon. What soft-headed lubber had a Bible? It was Dick, said one. Dick, was it? Then Dick can get to prayers, said Silver. He's seen his slice of luck as Dick. 
You may lay to that. But here the long man with the yellow eyes struck in. Belay that talk, John Silver, he said. This crew has tipped you the black spot in full council as in duty bound. Just you turn it over as in duty bound and see what's wrote there. Then you can talk. Thank you, George, replied the sea cook. You always was brisk for business and has the rules by heart, George, as I'm pleased to see. Well, what is it anyway? Ah, deposed. That's it, is it? Very pretty rote, to be sure. Like print, I swear. Your hand aright, George? Why, you was getting quite a leading man in this here crew. You'll be captain next, I shouldn't wonder. Just oblige me with that torch again, will you? This pipe don't draw. Come now, said George. You don't fool this crew no more. You're a funny man by your account. But you're over now and you'll maybe step down off that barrel and help vote. I thought you said you knowed the rules, returned Silver contemptuously. Leastways, if you don't, I do, and I wait here, and I'm still your captain, mind, till you outs with your grievances and I reply. In the meantime, your black spot ain't worth a biscuit. After that, we'll see. Oh, replied George. You don't be under no kind of apprehension. We're all square, we are. First, you made a hash of this cruise. You'll be a bold man to say no to that. Second, you let the enemy out of this here trap for nothing. Why do they want out? I don't know, but it's pretty plain they wanted it. Third, you wouldn't let us go at them upon the march. Oh, we see through you, John Silver. You want to play booty. That's what's wrong with you. And then fourth, there's this here boy. Is that all? asked Silver quietly. Enough, too, retorted George. We'll all swing and sun-dry for your bungling. Well, now, look here. I'll answer these four pints. One after another, I'll answer em. I made a hash of this cruise, did I? Well, now. You all know what I wanted, and you all know if that had been done that we'd have been aboard the Hispaniola this night as ever was. Every man of us alive and fit and full of good plum duff and the treasure in the hold of her by thunder. Well, who crossed me? Who forced my hand, as was the lawful captain? Who tipped me the black spot the day we landed and began this dance? Ah, it's a fine dance. I'm with you there. And looks mighty like a hornpipe in a rope's end at execution docked by London town, it does. But who done it? Why, he was Anderson and Hans. And you, George Mary. And you're the last above board of that same meddling crew. And you have the Davy Jones's insolence to up and stand for captain over me. You, that sank the lot of us. By the powers. But this tops the stiffest yarn to nothing. Silver paused, and I could see by the faces of George and his late comrades that these words had not been said in vain. That's for number one, cried the accused, wiping the sweat from his brow, for he had been talking with a vehemence that shook the house. Why, I give you my word, I'm sick to speak to you. You've neither sense nor memory, 
and I leave it to fancy where your mother's was that let you come to see. See? Gentlemen of fortune? I reckon tailors is your trade. Go on, John, said Morgan. Speak up to the others. Ah, the others, returned John. They're a nice lot, ain't they? You say this cruise is bungled, ah, by gum. If you could understand how bad it's bungled, you would see. We're that near the gibbet that my neck's stiff with thinking on it. You've seen em maybe hanged in chains, birds about em, seamen pintin' em out as they go down with the tide. Who's that, says one? That, why, that's John Silver. I knowed him well, says another. And you can hear the chains a-jangle as you go about and reach for the other boy. Now that's about where we are. Every mother's son of us, thanks to him, and Hans, and Anderson, and other ruination fools of you. And if you want to know about number four, and that boy, why, shiver my timbers, isn't he a hostage? Are we a-going to waste a hostage? No, not us. He might be our last chance, and I shouldn't wonder. Kill that boy? Not me, mates. And number three? Ah, well, there's a deal to say to number three. Maybe you don't count it nothing to have a real college doctor to see you every day. You, John, with your head broke. Or you, George Mary, that had the ague shakes upon you not six hours agone. And as your eyes the colour of lemon peel to this same moment on the clock. And maybe perhaps you didn't know there was a consort coming either. But there is, and not so long till then. And we'll see who'll be glad to have a hostage when it comes to that. And as for number two, and why I made a bargain, well, you came crawling on your knees to me to make it. On your knees you came. You was that downhearted. And you'd have starved too if I hadn't. But that's a trifle. You look there. That's why. And he cast down upon the floor a paper that I instantly recognized. None other than the chart on yellow paper with the three red crosses that I had found in the oilcloth at the bottom of the captain's chest. Why the doctor had given it to him was more than I could fancy. But if it were inexplicable to me, the appearance of the chart was incredible to the surviving mutineers. They leaped upon it like cats upon a mouse. It went from hand to hand, one tearing it from another, and by the oaths and the cries and the childish laughter with which they accompanied their examination, you would have thought not only they were fingering the very gold, but were at sea with it besides in safety. Yes, said one, that's Flint, sure enough, J.F., and a score below, with a clove-hitch to it, so he done ever. Mighty pretty, said George. But how are we to get away with it, and us no ship? Silver suddenly sprang up, and supporting himself with a hand against the wall, Now I give you warning, George, he cried. One more word of your source, and I'll call you down and fight you. How? Why, how do I know? You'd ought to tell me that, you and the rest that lost me my schooner, with your interference, burn you. But not you, you can't. You ain't got the invention of a cockroach. But civil you can speak and shall, George Mary. You may lay to that. That's fair enough, said the old man Morgan. Fair? I reckon so said the sea-cook. You lost the ship. I found the treasure. Who's the better man at that? And now I resign by thunder. 
Elect whom you please to be your captain now. I'm done with it. Silver, they cried. Barbecue forever. Barbecue for captain. So that's the tune, is it? cried the cook. George, I reckon you'll have to wait another turn, friend. And lucky for you as I'm not a revengeful man. But that was never my way. And now shipmates this black spot. Tain't much good now, is it? Dick's crossed his luck and spoiled his Bible, and that's about all. It'll do to kiss the book on still, won't it? growled Dick, who was evidently uneasy at the curse he had brought upon himself. A Bible with a bit cut out? returned Silver derisively. Not it. It don't bind no more in a ballad book. Don't it, though? cried Dick with a sort of joy. Well, I reckon that's worth having, too. Here, Jim, here's a curiosity for you, said Silver, and he tossed me the paper. It was around about the size of a crown piece. One side was blank, for it had been the last leaf. The other contained a verse or two of revelation. These words, among the rest, which struck sharply home upon my mind. Without are dogs and murderers. The printed side had been blackened with wood ash, which already began to come off and soil my fingers. On the blank side had been written with the same material the one word deposed. I have that curiosity beside me at this moment, but not a trace of writing now remains beyond a single scratch, much as a man might make with his thumbnail. That was the end of the night's business. Soon after, with a drink all round, we lay down to sleep, and the outside of Silver's vengeance was to put George Merry up for sentinel and threaten him with death if he should prove unfaithful. It was long ere I could close an eye, and heaven knows I had matter enough for thought in the man whom I had slain that afternoon, in my own most perilous position, and above all in the remarkable game that I saw Silver now engaged upon, keeping the mutineers together with one hand, and grasping with the other, after every means, possible and impossible, to make his peace and save his miserable life. He himself slept peacefully and snored aloud. Yet my heart was sore for him, wicked as he was, to think on the dark perils that environed and the shameful gibbet that awaited him. Chapter 3 On Parole I was wakened, indeed we were all wakened, for I could see even the sentinel shake himself together from where he had fallen against the doorpost, by a clear, hearty voice hailing us from the margin of the wood. "'Blockhouse ahoy!' it cried. "'Here's the doctor!' And the doctor it was. Although I was glad to hear the sound, yet my gladness was not without admixture. I remembered with confusion my insubordinate and stealthy conduct, and when I saw where it had brought me, among what companions and surrounded by what dangers, I felt ashamed to look him in the face. He must have risen in the dark, for the day had hardly come, and when I ran to a loophole and looked out, I saw him standing, like silver once before, up to the mid-leg in creeping vapour. "'You, doctor, top of the morning to you, sir,' cried silver, broad awake and beaming with good nature in a moment. "'Bright and early, to be sure, and it's the early bird, as the saying goes, that gets the rations. George?' Shake up your timber, son, and help Dr. Livesey over the ship's side. 
All a-doin' well, your patience was, all well and merry. So he pattered on, standing on the hilltop with his crutch under his elbow, and one hand upon the side of the log-house, quite the old John in voice, manner, and expression. We've quite a surprise for you, too, sir, he continued. We've a little stranger here, <laughs> a new boarder and lodger, sir, and looking fit and taut as a fiddle, slept like a supercargo, he did, right alongside a John. Stem to stem we was all night. Dr. Livesey was by this time across the stockade and pretty near the cook, and I could hear the alteration in his voice as he said, Not Jim, the very same Jim as ever was, says Silver. The doctor stopped outright, although he did not speak, and it was some seconds before he seemed able to move on. Well, well, he said at last, duty first and pleasure afterwards, as you might have said yourself, Silver. Let us overhaul these patients of yours. A moment afterwards, he had entered the blockhouse, and with one grim nod to me, proceeded with his work among the sick. He seemed under no apprehension, though he must have known that his life, among these treacherous demons, depended on a hare, and he rattled on to his patients as if he were paying an ordinary professional visit in a quiet English family. His manner, I suppose, reacted on the men, for they behaved to him as if nothing had occurred, as if he were still ship's doctor, and they still faithful hands before the mast. "'You're doing well, my friend,' he said to the fellow with the bandaged head. "'And if ever any person had a close shave, it was you. "'Your head must be as hard as iron. "'Well, George, how goes it? "'You're a pretty colour, certainly. "'Why, your liver, man, is upside down. "'Did you take that medicine? "'Did he take that medicine, men?' "'Aye, aye, sir, he took it, sure enough,' returned Morgan. "'Because, you see, since I am mutineer's doctor,' or prison doctor, as I prefer to call it, says Dr. Livesey in his pleasantest way. I make it a point of honour not to lose a man for King George, God bless him, and the gallows. The rogues looked at each other, but swallowed the home thrust in silence. Dick don't feel well, sir, said one. Don't he? replied the doctor. Well, step up here, Dick, and let me see your tongue. Now I should be surprised if he did. A man's tongue is fit to frighten the French, another fever. Ah, there, said Morgan. That come to spilin' Bibles. That comes, as you call it, of being arrant asses, retorted the doctor, and not having sense enough to know honest air from poison, and the dry land from a vile, pestiferous slough. I think it most probable, though of course it's only an opinion, that you'll all have the deuce to pay before you get that malaria out of your systems. Camp in a bog, would you? Silver, I'm surprised at you. You're less of a fool than many, take you all round, but you don't appear to me to have the rudiments of a notion of the rules of health. Well, he added, after he had dosed them round and they had taken his prescriptions, with really laughable humility, more like charity schoolchildren than blood-guilty mutineers and pirates, well, that's done for today. And now I should wish to have a talk with that boy, please. And he nodded his head in my direction carelessly. George Merry was at the door, spitting and spluttering over some bad-tasted medicine. 
but at the first word of the doctor's proposal, he swung round with a deep flush and cried, No! and swore. Silver struck the barrel with his open hand. Silence! he roared, and looked about him positively like a lion. Doctor, he went on in his usual tones, I was a-thinking of that, knowing as how you had a fancy for the boy. We're all humbly grateful for your kindness, and, as you see, puts faith in you and takes the drugs down like that much grog. And I take it I've found a way as'll suit all. Orkins, will you give me your word of honour as a young gentleman, for a young gentleman you are, although poor-born, your word of honour not to slip your cable? I readily gave the pledge required. Then, doctor, said Silver, you just step outside of that stockade, and once you're there, I'll bring the boy down on the inside, and I'll reckon you can yarn through the spars. Good day to you, sir, and all our duties to the squire and Captain Smollett. The explosion of disapproval, which nothing but Silver's black looks had restrained, broke out immediately the doctor had left the house. Silver was roundly accused of playing double, of trying to make a separate peace for himself, of sacrificing the interests of his accomplices and victims, and, in one word, of the identical exact thing that he was doing. It seemed to me so obvious in this case that I could not imagine how he was to turn their anger. But he was twice the man the rest were, and his last night's victory had given him a huge preponderance on their minds. He called them all the fools and dolts you can imagine, said it was necessary I should talk to the doctor, fluttered the chart in their faces, asked them if they could afford to break the treaty the very day they were bound a treasure-hunting. No, by thunder, he cried. It's us must break the treaty when the time comes, and till then I'll gammon that doctor if I have to aisle his boots with brandy. And then he bade them get the fire lit and stalked out upon his crutch, with his hand on my shoulder, leaving them in disarray, and silenced by his volubility, rather than convinced. Slow, lad, slow, he said. They might round upon us in a twinkle of an eye if we was seen to hurry. Very deliberately, then, did we advance across the sand to where the doctor awaited us on the other side of the stockade, and as soon as we were within easy speaking distance, Silver stopped. You'll make a note of this here also, doctor, says he, and the boy'll tell you how I saved his life, and were deposed for it too, and you may lay to that. Doctor, when a man steering as near the wind as me, playing chuck farthing with the last breath in his body like, you wouldn't think it too much mayhap to give him one good word? You'll please bear in mind it's not my life only now. It's that boy's into the bargain, and you'll speak me fair, doctor and give me a bit of hope to go on, for the sake of mercy. Silver was a changed man once he was out there, and had his back to his friends in the blockhouse. His cheeks seemed to have fallen in. His voice trembled. Never was a soul more dead in earnest. Why, John, you're not afraid? asked Dr. Livesey. Doctor, I'm no coward. No, not I. Not so much. And he snapped his fingers. If I was, I wouldn't say it, but I'll own up fairly. I've the shakes upon me for the gallows. You're a good man and a true, 
I never seen a better man. And you'll not forget what I done good, not any more than you'll forget the bad I know. And I step aside, see here, and leave you and Jim alone, and you'll put that down for me too, for it's a long stretch, is that? So saying, he stepped back a little way, till he was out of earshot, and there sat down upon a tree stump and began to whistle, spinning round now and again upon his seat, so as to command a sight, sometimes of me and the doctor, and sometimes of his unruly ruffians, as they went to and fro in the sand between the fire which they were busy rekindling, and the house, from which they brought pork and bread to make the breakfast. So, Jim, said the doctor sadly, here you are. As you have brewed, so shall you drink, my boy. Heaven knows I cannot find it in my heart to blame you, but this much I will say, be it kind or unkind. When Captain Smollett was well, you dared not have gone off, and when he was ill and couldn't help it, by George, it was downright cowardly. I will own that I here began to weep. Doctor, I said, you might spare me. I have blamed myself enough. My life's forfeit anyway, and I should have been dead by now if Silver hadn't stood for me. And, Doctor, believe this, I can die, and I dare say that I deserve it. But what I fear is torture. If they come to torture me... Jim, the doctor interrupted, and his voice was quite changed. Jim, I can't have this. Whip over, and we'll run for it. Doctor, said I, I passed my word. I know, I know, he cried. We can't help that, Jim, now. I'll take it on my shoulders. Holus, bolus, blame and shame, my boy. But stay here, I cannot let you. Jump, one jump, and you're out, and we'll run for it like antelopes. No. I replied. You know right well you wouldn't do the thing yourself. Neither you nor squire nor captain. And no more will I. Silver trusted me. I passed my word, and back I go. But, doctor, you did not let me finish. If they come to torture me, I might let slip a word of where the ship is, for I got the ship, part by luck and part by risking, and she lies in North Inlet, on the southern beach and just below high water. At half-tide she must be high and dry. The ship! exclaimed the doctor. Rapidly I described to him my adventures, and he heard me out in silence. There is a kind of fate in this, he observed when I had done. Every step, it's you that saves our lives, and do you suppose by any chance that we are going to let you lose yours? That would be a poor return, my boy. You found out the plot. You found Ben Gunn, the best deed that ever you did or will do, though you live to ninety. Oh, by Jupiter, and talking of Ben Gunn, why, this is the mischief in person. Silver! he cried. Silver! I'll give you a piece of advice, he continued as the cook drew near again. Don't you be in any great hurry after that treasure. Why, sir, I do my possible, which that ain't, said Silver. I can only, asking your pardon, save my life and the boys by seeking for that treasure. You may lay to that. Well, Silver, replied the doctor, if that is so, I'll go one step further. Look out for squalls when you find it. Sir, 
said Silva. As between man and man, that's too much and too little. What you're after? Why you left the blockhouse? Why you given me that there chart? I don't know, now do I? And yet I done your bidding with my eyes shut and never a word of hope, but no. This here's too much. If you won't tell me what you mean, plain out, just say so and I'll leave the helm. No, said the doctor, musingly. I've no right to say more. It's not my secret, you see, Silver, for I give you my word I'd tell it you. But I'll go as far with you as I dare go, and a step beyond, for I'll have my wig sorted by the captain or I'm mistaken. And first I'll give you a bit of hope. Silver, if we both get alive out of this wolf-trap, I'll do my best to save you, short of perjury. Silver's face was radiant. You couldn't say more, I'm sure, sir. Not if you was my mother, he cried. Well, that's my first concession, added the doctor. My second is a piece of advice. Keep the boy close beside you. When you need help, halloo. I'm off to seek it for you, and that itself will show you if I speak at random. Goodbye, Jim. And Dr. Livesey shook hands with me through the stockade nodded to Silver, and set off at a brisk pace into the wood. This is B.J. Harrison. I hope you've enjoyed this unabridged production of Treasure Island Part 6 of 7 by Robert Louis Stevenson. If you've enjoyed this book, please become a monthly supporter by going to classictalesaudiobooks.com. Donate $5 a month and get a monthly coupon code for $8 off anything in the store. It's a great way to build out your classic audiobook library. Give more and you get more. Thank you so much for your support. Thank you for joining me today and allowing classic literature to awaken your better self. Please join me every week, and we'll rediscover the greatest stories ever put to paper. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.